Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with artist Darice Walker. Darice lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He's been there for some years now since getting his Master of Fine Arts degree at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And he also has roots in the Midwest and in Colorado, where he got his undergraduate degree in visual and performing arts at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Darius describes his work as combining race, identity, and religion into sociopolitical responses, so we talk about a couple of his most powerful art series. One that speaks directly to police brutality, and one called Black Fathers Matter, that celebrates black fathers and addresses the lack of positive imagery of black men in society. We talk about fear and vulnerability in making art, and facing one's inner critic. We talk about the process of creating and reaching into places of pain, and maybe even tears, to mine one's art. Darice shares about a couple of collaborations, too, one with a pair of Broadway theater stars and one with the founder of Living Life Fearless, longtime friend and globe-traveling basketball player Dario Hunt. And there are other things, too, of course. So here we go. My conversation with multi-talented artist Darice Walker. Hey, Darice Walker, welcome to Humanitu. Hey, good to meet you. Thank you for having me, Adam. So, look, you're out in Brooklyn now, right? Yeah, yeah, out here in New York, Brooklyn, for a couple years now. Okay, so you're living in Brooklyn. I know you got your MFA at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, but you've mm-hmm. also studied art in undergrad at UCCS, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. So, yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. So what I don't know is where are you actually from? Are you from the Springs? Are you from New York, somewhere else? Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of a mix up. I, uh, I'm pretty much from Colorado Springs. I, I say pretty much because uh, I was born in Kansas, actually. Um, but I was okay. only there for maybe about a year or two when I was an infant. So my mom moved from there to Colorado Springs. And then um, we stayed there, maybe until I was in about preschoolish. And um, she's from Nebraska. That's where she grew up. So like my grandma and all my aunts and uncles live there. So we ended up moving back to Nebraska for a few years. So I lived there maybe till like second grade. And then we moved back to Colorado Springs. And then okay. I kind of just visit Nebraska every summer. So I kind of just stayed there in Colorado Springs. So I'm kind of from Colorado and Nebraska. Gotcha. Well, and you know, for me, then it's a really obvious sort of distinction between life in New York City, mm-hmm. living in Brooklyn, being an artist there. Yeah. You got this sort of Midwest thing a little bit with Nebraska, but then also the mountains out mm-hmm. here in Colorado. So I'm kind of curious about how that uh, environment, how the upbringing and the range of your experience now, not just from your upbringing, but into adulthood in New York, you've got this whole mix. So how has that range of geography influenced uh, your life? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's like a a great variety of sorts. What's cool is like just um, like Nebraska, Colorado, and New York give you kind of a taste of like all of America. Like those three places kind of give you right. A little bit because I mean New York does have a beach it's not like Miami Beach but they do have like uh, Rockaway Beach and things like that so you can still get that and it's like a huge city so you you have that like environment where you know everything's moving and there's always noise and you know in Nebraska it's like really flat so like in Colorado it's like always a beautiful background like the backdrop is just like you know whatever the sky looks like unless it's cloudy with the the beautiful mountains instead of a cityscape. So it was kind of cool to trade the mountainscape for the cityscape here in New York. Cause like basically Manhattan from Brooklyn is like Pike's peak to me from UCCS, (laughs) you know, who and what were around you that have an influence that you consider to be shaping and who you are as an artist, even today. I was an only child growing up, so, you know, my mom was a a creative person, naturally. But um, in terms of, like, you know, people around me and and growing up, you know, art's always been sort of like a hobby as I was when I was a kid growing up. So I always had a sketchbook, naturally. And um, it was sort of just something I did. And, 
I never took it seriously when I was in high school until maybe I was about a senior uh, getting ready to graduate. And um, I went to Rampart High School there in Colorado Springs. And yeah, I guess those years are when like I made like really close friends. And I remember the first year, my freshman year in high school is like the first year I won um, first place in an art show. It was interesting. But I didn't take an art class again until my senior year. So like I really, I was into it. And like, I always had a sketchbook in high school, but I never cared enough to like keep taking art classes and stuff like that. Even when you weren't in art classes in high school, but you still had this kind of uh, sketchbook uh, yeah. perspective in life going on. I'm curious what you were interested. What was it, the, the subject matter that uh, caught your eye or had you filling in those pages then? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like reflecting on some of the stuff, you know, at the root of it, a lot of it kind of relates to like how I approach my art practice now. Uh, like a lot of stuff would be like, uh, just little things where I'm inserting just like a, a black guy into an everyday narrative, like it's me, you know, or something or like pictures, you know, for, you know, holidays or like, or even little things like like a rose, just classic like tropes of, you know, romance and art, just like little things that, you know, I would try to like copy maybe something I thought was cool or like, oh, that's going to be a tattoo one day or something. But, you know, those little things, like the more that I started to do it, the more it started to be like, oh, I'm drawing black Santa Claus or like this is a black person's hand holding a rose now, you know. And, um, so like the subtlety of that, I think, was where I I kind of look back and, and can see connections between what I do now. Um, but, you know, in between, like I said, I'd be drawing little things like, you know, just doodling in between class as well. But, you know, sometimes it'd be thematic. Your art now, it does not focus on things like mountain landscapes, like where you had your uh, a good part of your youth in, the, right. in Colorado. It's on some pretty serious stuff. It's on subject matter that runs much deeper mm -hmm. uh, for you and in general for all of us. Right. So it has this uh, broader cultural significance, too. And it's mm -hmm. work that you have described yourself as it combines race, identity and religion in a sociopolitical responses. So. With that work, what is it specifically that you are responding to? Um, what are the elements of a subject that really compel you to say, I mean, I got to get into this one. I've got to say something. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. A lot of my work, so like I started out kind of just reflecting in my in the beginning of my process when I was at UCCS. I was trying to think about, you know, like why I make art, you know, why am I you know, an artist, like, what, what am I interested in? Uh, what kind of things do I want to say? And then throughout that process, answering these questions for yourself as an artist, I started to, you know, consider it was, it was like a lot about identity and like why I am being treated a certain way. You know, why do people interact with me a certain way? Why are certain jokes more common? You know, like what, you know, why is certain energy, you know, a normality directed toward me when I can see it's different for others. Uh, so you start to like really think about it and, and try to come up with answers for it. And then, you know, that starts to become a rabbit hole of, you know, historical investigation. So um, it went, it went from thinking about myself to thinking about how I'm treated in society to thinking about how people like me are treated in society. And, um, right. you know, as I started to develop a language of thinking about that and, and creating work, you know, things started to happen more frequently, I guess, in the news, it seemed to be more prevalent. Um, and I guess th the sort of trigger for me reacting to um, politics directly was when Trayvon Martin died in 2012. Because I was I was making work that was political, but it wasn't directly about um, current events. It was sort of it was loosely tied to, um, I guess, social injustice in the now, but not about like a specific happening. Right. And uh, when when Trayvon Martin died, I, I was in school and 
this is like I said, even in high school when I'd have a, a notebook, I was in school and I was an art major in art classes, but um, none of the classes I could make like a work to respond to that situation that would like fit a uh, coursework or like get credit for it. So I was literally outside of class creating this artwork in response to Trayvon Martin, like for no credit while I'm in college and art school. But I eventually talked my way into getting credit for that in an independent study because I was like, this is what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> like yeah, without yeah. any credit at all. It's like, I'm doing this, you know, I got this stuff going on, you know, I'm in a group show, but you know, like <laughs> you guys want me to <laughs> tell you about like the basic elements in art making, like <laughs> I'm a piece of paper. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to really be an artist out here, you know? <laughs> So the materials you use in your work also factors in. Uh, you use some pretty simple stuff that we can find kind of everywhere. It's cardboard and right. charcoal. And so, and, and a lot of the work that I have seen uh, of yours tends to be monochromatic. Uh -huh. So I would, I would say, uh, you know, it's grayscale sort of black and white, except it's, it's on this brown cardboard uh, that you tear, that you work with um, by no means even, let's say, that perfect sense of cardboard, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's part of your message in itself. And I'm curious, uh, I'd like to hear you elaborate more on, on that from what I've yeah. already read. Why cardboard? Yeah, Why definitely. Charcoal? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. Uh, the material, this is something I learned at UCCS working with a mentor, Corey Dreith. He's a professor there. And he was telling me, you know, there's there's a really an importance to considering like the materials you use and how they can amplify the message you're trying to convey. And that sort of stuck with me and made me think about, you know, what what could make the meanings that I'm trying to convey more serious just by using a particular material and cardboard was sort of around and I just saw it and was looking at it and started to think about it and I was like oh well it is brown it's like a brown you know piece of paper so I could totally draw on it but I was like well drawing I was like I don't want to just do that to do that so then I started to think about it more and I was like oh well charcoal and cardboard are both sort of materials that come from the same thing you know they're both yeah you know so like it's sort of like they they start so they're almost the same material in in an in a weird way but from there so it's like the brown and the material is sort of already talking about recycling together but then it it's like i'm recycling or repurposing and then okay. i thought about usefulness and um how cardboard's considered easily replaceable and cheap and low quality and i was thinking about the lower class and and black people and including myself being treated like low quality and easily appraisable or just cheap, you know, those types of stereotypes even persist. So I began to think about the cardboard as a metaphor for the black American experience. And it's essentially, that's my explanation for how I use the material and utilize it to enhance my messages now. It amazes me, you know, the power that's in that and something that can be overlooked so easily something that is simple right mm -hmm. so we all have cardboard around we're all ordering packages we're doing whatever mm -hmm. but to now have a new eye on that and to look at that as that metaphor and then also to see your artwork on it which mm -hmm. i want to bring us into one of those series now in particular you mentioned the trayvon martin uh, news uh, specifically giving you something to portray in your work as opposed mm -hmm. to the general social aspect of say the black experience in America, police cross lines is the mm. name of one of your series. That series especially speaks to some pretty powerful stuff. Right. Uh, like what happened with Trayvon and some others, you know, I lived in St. Louis for a dozen years and I was there mm. during the time when Mike Brown was killed by a police officer in Ferguson, which is right. in the St. Louis area. And you have a piece called From Ferguson to Baltimore, which, of course, it, it just in the names of those two cities talks about spanning some geography. Uh, but also, this is a really sizable piece. We're talking 24 and a half 
feet mm-hmm. by four and a half feet, and that's in a collection in Belgium. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, uh huh. That's um uh, a recent acquisition, actually. Uh, but yeah, that's in uh, the uh, Mercier collection in Antwerp. That's awesome. Uh, and I'm also I, I think that really attests to how this is subject matter. This is a message that needs to be heard near and far. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, again, going back to the names of the cities, Ferguson, Baltimore, Trayvon was down in Florida. There, there are examples all across the country. It seems anymore like so many of us have now lived near enough to at least one of these incidents mm-hmm. that's made national news. And I just think that this work you're doing with Police Cross Lines is incredibly powerful. So it kind of begs a question for me in this as well that... I'm wondering about a fear factor for you in using your voice in this way mm-hmm. when you already, I, I would understand if you said you feel a little bit like a target just as a black man out on the street, mm-hmm. because these news headlines show that. Yeah. Does well, fear weigh into this for you? Well, I'll say yes to answer it directly and then explain what I mean. Fear definitely is a, a an element of consideration and, um, you know, fear for me is, is a good thing because it helps you recognize that you're reacting to something. And okay. uh, it, it's sort of like a marker to, to consider the, the mental space you're in and what, whatever that task is at hand. And like, so why you can better understand like what, what the fear means. Like, is it good fear or bad fear? Like, is it run away from this fear or is it like figure this out and get past it? You know, because it's important okay. fear. And um, so, like, thinking about, like, just being a black man and, like, living in New York at that exact time, New York has the most police officers, like, per person, uh, just, like, on the street, you know, in in the United States. So it's, it was, like, sort of the fear or, I guess, anxiety, this Police Cross Lines series that I created um, stemmed from my anxieties being in New York during that time when Mike Brown was shot and, you know, Eric Garner the year before had been killed and things were, you know, people were rioting in Baltimore and here in New York, we've always had the most police officers per capita, just like in groups or in the subway. And uh, it can kind of be intimidating, especially when you feel like a target when you move around just in your body. So that sort of led me to react to that, just black bodies sort of being almost devalued in the news media because of uh, police officers being acquitted of all charges. You know, the plainclothes police officers who choked out Eric Gardner in uh, Staten Island the chokehold was deemed illegal, but all of the officers who were part of that incident are still employed by the NYPD. So, okay. it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's a situation where, you know, something can also, you, you can say it was wrong, but uh, you, you don't necessarily see an accurate punishment for it. And that sort of, in the in the eye of the public, and especially the black public, when they see that happening to a black person, sort of kind of sheds light on how what their value is when they walk around in the streets so that's sort of like my reaction is is this series is like all right you know the the yellow tape that police officers put up on crime scene says police line do not cross and it's like all right well you guys cross lines all the time like you know i keep seeing it so i'm gonna make this series called police cross lines it takes a lot of courage, I would say, and quite a bit of vulnerability for you to then use your voice in this direct, powerful way to speak out and say, I see these things, our community sees these things, the world sees these things, and I'm helping them to see it even more. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine, too, then, that that sense of, but by doing this, I might be putting a target on my back. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's especially around the time you have a show or something. So I'm just curious about that balance of I need to use my voice. This is not something that is okay. I've got to speak up, but also risk. 
Yeah, you know, there is risk for sure. I mean, even while you're making stuff like that, you don't even know if you'll ever be able to like show it in a gallery because like someone else has to see it and <laughs> kind of curate it, you know, so. Uh, they might not want to take that heat on the gallery. Yeah, exactly. Because I remember, speaking of Colorado, when I had my show at the Fine Arts Center there, that was the series um police cross lines that i had exhibited and uh, a piece in the denver post the uh, headline said not everyone's gonna like Doris walker's in your face uh paintings and drawings <laughs> so it was like you know like that that was like a headline that a writer wrote i have seen that actually and his first line if i remember in that article was also uh speaking directly to that idea that this is the kind of thing that gets galleries into hot water and <laughs> yeah. a lot of people don't want to touch this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I was curious when I read that, I'm like, Oh man, how, how do you respond to that? Is, is that something that excites you? And it's like, yeah, you guys need to wake up everybody, all of us, we need to collectively come together yeah. around this information. Or is it also like, you're kind of feeding into the problem and condemning this a little bit too, because you're already saying it's going to piss somebody off. Like sometimes that's good in art. And sometimes I could see if that means some of the, mm -hmm. if it sets, if it sets a tone for right. a certain part segment of the audience to say, yeah, there's more of that. I don't want to see that, you know? Definitely. Yeah. You know, there wasn't any particular backlash actually. That show was really well received. And I think that good. that article was sort of meant to, elaborate on the importance of of critical thinking in museums and gallery spaces versus like beauty and aesthetics always being at the forefront so right. okay. you know it's sort of like i think it was sort of like a poke at at thinking about it more and like uh how much art is really you know making us think and and feel yeah, it's true. Not everyone is going to like it, but, you know, see for yourself. <laughs> it's kind of like what that was. It kind of felt like, yeah, you know, if, if you you want to see something really interesting, check this out. You know, it's almost like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've wondered who who do you consider your audience to be? Because mm -hmm. I, I could see it if I just put it into, say, two categories. You've got yeah. the people who know your pain, like truly they know your pain mm -hmm. on this. And then you've got the people who need to wake up to the existence of these things. Right. So I'm wondering who it is you want really to see and hear this, mm -hmm. uh, the, the messages in this work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My audience, I guess my target audience for the, the type of in-your-face work I make, you know, the, for the people who feel the pain, they sort of understand the sentiments when the pain's right. being expressed, um, like personally, so they don't necessarily need to relive it visually, right. but they understand why it's being represented so that it's not forgotten. But that's not necessarily the target audience. That's the, the audience that it's sort of like made with respect to, um, right. okay. the, the, the target audience is the, the gallery uh, museum goer the 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 people who like i said with that article you know how this these are the kind of shows that get galleries and museums in hot water it's like yeah because galleries and museums don't show work that <laughs> makes people think so it's like this is me trying to make work in a way that is against the sort of norm in the galleries and like trying to insert some more I guess, information and, and keep conversations about these situations going um, amongst these individuals so that it's not sort of something that happened a long time ago, but like, oh, like this is real serious. This is making me feel. And then, you know, it, it translates to different people, not the people that know already. I want to talk about another series that you have that is called Black Fathers Matter. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, do you have kids? No, actually, I'm, I'm not. Okay. Well, then I'm curious about your relationship with your father. Mm -hmm. if, Definitely. And I guess, I guess also as if there's more to also elaborate on about the motivation for this particular work. Uh -huh. But I, 
I'm curious first, I guess, about relationship or not good or not right. with your father. Yeah, you know, my relationship with my dad is complicated. Um, I mentioned before that I grew up as a only child to a single mother. So my dad and mom were never actually married. He was an army guy, so he, he was stationed okay. in like Shriver or Fort Carson. Or no, yeah, something like that. I think it's Shriver Army Base or something okay in colorado. Yeah, in colorado springs yeah and okay. uh yeah i sort of grew up only seeing him really intermittently and um part of this like the motivation for this series um going back to audience was sort of focusing on the opposite and instead of making work for the people who uh, know already i'm making this series is more about making images that uh, I didn't get to grow up with um, or memories. It, it started out, you know, as a black male, when you grow up without a father, you look outside of the home for a father figure, um, you know, sort of lessons and tools. You sort of see a man and you, you sort of like pick what you like and don't like. And you sort of emulate it as you grow up, your friends and, you know, your friends' dads, you sort of pick those things up. And, uh, you know, so like I'm sort of revisiting while I'm photographing fathers around the city, um, remembering how as a kid I would look at fathers sort of, you know, like, oh, he's cool or like, oh, that dad is a nerd you know like oh that but he, you know he has a nicer car or like you know just like oh, okay so but he you know he walks different you know like oh uh, if i want to be cool like that i gotta walk like that you know <laughs> <laughs> so you like watch and you observe but then like that's sort of the as an adult looking at it you sort of admire it from a different standpoint and it's sort of like the courage it takes and like the effort that you know he's actually there making the the memory so it's like uh sort of celebrating that man doing it you know versus like my father who wasn't gotcha and when you are seeing these men now and in the the images the visual art that you create through this with mm-hmm. fathers black men in particular uh of of course, by the name of the series being Black Fathers Matter. And they're with their children, young children. Maybe it's in a stroller. Maybe they're playing. You know, you're seeing that and then recasting that in a positive light when I think it would also be understandable if other emotions came into play for you, perhaps Mm -hmm. anger or, you know, because of what you didn't have. And, And in a sense, even as a grown man now for you, you still don't have some of those, uh, that relationship value Mm. that I would understand if you feel like, well, I wish I did. Right. Did you ever go through some of that as well? Where were you angry for a while and did that come out in a different way? Or how did you come to this place of, of warmth and positive Mm -hmm. perspective that now you portray that in your visual art? Right. Yeah. You know, this whole black fathers matter series was sort of, um, it's a, it was about positivity because a lot of my work, you know, I'm protesting, but I'm also protesting black of that type of imagery just in general. Like I didn't, uh, as a black kid right. grow up getting to see it in public view, even in advertisements and stuff, it, w- it would always have some sort of other element involved. And it didn't seem like black people were represented in normality, like normalcy. So I never got to see okay. like what that even looked like. Um, but you know, I've actually even at UCCS, a project that um, never, like I pretty much threw away, but like helped me <laughs> sort of go through that process was um, I wrote like poems about the situation and, and sort of made like a, a poetry uh, book with drawings in it. But okay. the drawings are really bad. So like I kind of just saved the poetry, but those poems <laughs> were like okay but not great but they sort of worked out how i felt i sort of tried to key in on my adolescence and why i would be mad and a lot of those memories and anger just came from you know being a kid 
and kids talking about like what they did with their dads or or bragging about like oh my dad this and then you're being like yeah well my dad's in the military or like you know like <laughs> and not and having nothing else to say like like oh what right. you do okay. with your dad and you're like uh I haven't seen him in like a year, you know. <laughs> so it's like those awkward situations that you get put it's in tough. as a child, you know, and you don't even really know why. So it's like having to revisit that and understand that, like, you know, you don't have to be mad about that, you know, and and that sort of relinquishes some of the the anger, and you don't have to be mad. You can just understand that, you know as an adult now it's different and that's why it's sort of like a the respect i'm like sort of respecting like you know these these young men i'm like wow that guy's young you know and he's he's being response seemingly responsible so that's also the thing it's like the series also doesn't necessarily like there's a little bit of ambiguity in terms of like we don't know for sure that could be the dad's weekend with the kids or something, you know, or like, Oh uh, yeah. You know, like that, you know, like all the, or it could be the uncle or, or, you know, like the cousin. It's not so much about the dad, dad, but like the father figure and like the, the black male role model. Besides your speaking to that stereotype and trying to maybe undo that a bit by saying, no, here's, you need to start seeing everybody in general. Mm-hmm. You need to start seeing these images. They exist as well. But I also wonder, mm-hmm. in this case, maybe for some of those uh, young black men who have not stood with their children, mm-hmm. are you speaking at all to them in the yeah, process? Yeah, definitely. This one's definitely um, different. I guess it's more for, if I if I could sum it up more simply, it would be like the other more protest specific projects are like for them and the black bodies matters for us basically like it's like i'm talking to you know people who look like me um intentionally with this um versus the other ones where i'm not intentionally making a statement to them but sort of with them whereas this one's sort of like to to us and them uh where it's like, you know, recognize, you know, that we, we, we can do this, you know, it's like, Hey guys, look, we, you know, (laughs) like we we don't all have to just, you know, go to the club and, you know, glorify, you know, wasting our money on, on stupid stuff. You know, we can, we can, you know, be successful, you know, like, and be regular, you know, some of the pictures are like, you know, a, a dad had like Burberry sneakers on and his little two-year-old had Jordan shoes on, you know, it's like, but you know, it's like so subtle cause they're just wearing t-shirts and stuff. And it's like, well, that, that's not like a poor dad and kid, you know, if they have enough money for brand new stuff like that. So it's like showing black people not poor with their kids is a, is a thing. Cause a lot of it's like welfare imagery and like food stamp right you know so it's like showing black people with kids that's not food stamp associated is a thing too. okay yeah well and it's it's occurring to me here that we're also not talking about there being a blame or judgment kind of aspect but rather uh maybe the message to these young black men really is that you're showing this is what it looks like because i know you didn't see it because i didn't see it you know Mm -hmm. these images aren't what's put out there in mass media so you're playing a role and saying this is what it looks like and it's okay to look like this it's okay to be there in this way yeah so that's, exactly that's cool. it's like yeah we can we can just exist as ourselves you know like we don't have to you know like some of the walls yeah. we put up are unnecessary right we talked about fear with police cross lines in particular uh i want to bring in the word uh vulnerability mm-hmm. and how you face that uh how you recognize that uh, maybe a little different than the fear thing. It's mm-hmm. it's there for any artist, anybody who's creating and then also putting it out. I mean, they have to face their own inner critic first right. and then put it out into public. W- what is that experience for you internally? And, and how do you as an artist overcome that to let yourself be out there in public with it? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, for artists, they, it's sort of a, 
thing. It's almost like you have to train yourself to get used to it so that you, you recognize it and you just move past it quicker because you always feel that sort of, I guess, resistance to want to share, you know, because you're like, you're, you're, right. you're thinking about how you feel about something so intensely that like you want to convey it as like perfect as possible. So like you're really sensitive about trying to execute your idea and you really hope that that comes across when you feel like you're done with it. So like you're definitely really sensitive each time you create something, but you know, a lot of just higher education helped uh, in terms of uh, going to UCCS and then graduate school where you're, you're sort of put in a position to have to understand like nuances. You have to understand yourself. You have to be open to um, the criticism in process. Like you're not even done yet, but um, you have to deal with what someone might say about, you know, something that's incomplete, you know, so like you, you sort of get a thicker skin after graduate school because you, you sort of get critiqued constantly. <laughs> Would you say that that's one of the primary benefits then of, of especially graduate school in art? Because of course there's, I think there's an ongoing conversation or maybe it's not even necessary as a conversation, but where some people are say, well, art school is valuable. And others say, well, of course you don't need that program to mm-hmm. become an artist, it's okay to go ahead and express yourself and you can even become successful. But would yeah. you say that thing you were just talking about where that sense of facing the fire, the criticism uh, in those workshops and in different things that come along with a master's of fine arts experience, mm-hmm. a program, is, is that the most important piece of that? Do you think? Yeah, I would say that's probably like the second most important thing, but like definitely okay. in the top, like what you should be getting out of it. That's the thing that, um, a lot of people struggle with though, um, in terms of art school is that part. Um, but like the first most important part about just higher education in general is actually networking. Um, people don't realize, you know, the more people you meet, like you don't have to be friends with everybody, but the more people you meet, like the better your future might be just like in general, knowing different people and in the world. Okay. It's just like the people, some people that I've met in college, just, you never know. It's, it's, there's something, it's just something weird about just, uh, cause the people spread out, you know, it's like we're in college in this city that we're in, but then after it, we all spread out around the world and around the country and stuff. And, you know, that making those sort of connections is kind of more important because sometimes they reach out or sometimes they remember what you were doing is similar to something someone they just met is interested in. So I just mentioned your name, you know, so like you've already sort of networked your way into maybe an opportunity 20 years from now. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So that's why it's important. It's because it's like you don't it's like a long term investment in terms of meeting people relationships but then with the art and sort of like the critique part you really for an artist that part is how you sort of get moved through the process of coming up with an idea and then actually um making that idea come to fruition because you have to like a lot of artists get hung up on that vulnerability and and fear of of being um offended almost or 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 not appreciated or um i think that's especially being they're afraid of not being appreciated being seen maybe even worse being seen as if you have no idea what you're doing right You you don't belong here you're not an artist like all these things that really end up speaking to the heart and identity possibly of that person. If they really identify as I'm an artist and this is everything to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and for me, like, that's why, like I said, that, that critique part is, it's, you know, you get, you, it forces you to figure out how to navigate that. And for me, it was just 
really understanding why I do everything, you know, like every mark on the surface is important, you know, like the tears on the cardboard surfaces, I treat like right. brush strokes on a canvas, you know, I know why it's there, you know, in the direction that it is, you know, like all of that, like the way the corrugation goes either side to side or up and down is is chosen you know so like every every that. little thing is important about the piece and um for artists it's who aren't prepared for yeah exactly so you know the the thing comes into question is like if you don't know all the if you don't have intentions behind everything you know that's that's where you're vulnerable in critique um, yeah yeah if you don't know why yeah, because someone will ask you about that, and you know, if it's it's seemingly irrelevant question that you haven't considered, that's when they look at you, and that's when the artist feels weird. When you know, artists fully have the the right. Like this is another thing artists forget. You can say I don't know, or I haven't thought about that. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. You you can say that and move on. Like you don't have to stumble over your words and try to make something up. <laughs> you you can you're, you're allowed to say you don't know or that's interesting thank you for bringing that to my attention you know yeah with you don't have to be scared that you're gonna look foolish that's good stuff to keep in mind I, I think that a lot of us generally even outside of art tend to feel like well you have to have the answer somebody asks you a question you can't look foolish you know and so on so i think there's a lot of other cultural stuff going on there that we bring into it right. especially as artists feel, feel vulnerable definitely if we go back to some of these sociopolitical matters that mm -hmm. you speak to with your work, you know, these things are no doubt very long standing. Yeah. Like, I think you said something a little bit ago about showing that this stuff still is happening. Right. And of course, you know, it's not like this, it, it ended with slavery. It's not like it ended in the sixties with civil rights movement. It's like, there are things still happening. Mm -hmm. And in that context, uh, how you see the current times of politics, cultural division, and if you even see it as any worse or if it really is just kind of more of the same in your perspective. Mm. Yeah, the, the the times right now, it's, it's really interesting. It's hard to say the same. It's not the same. Well, basically what's happening now is definitely a, a direct result of things that happened during the civil rights movement. Both good and bad things have happened, and now it's sort of, I guess with how society works right now, there's an emphasis on political correctness. So it's more about manners and rather than like actual education. Okay. So it seems basically like the, the racism is hidden behind manners now. You can only be racist, you know, in certain, you know, context where it's... With certain people around you at a certain safe distance. Yeah, exactly. And as long as we have a permit, then we are good. So we're going to say whatever we want about anyone because we have a permit for it. You know, like, <laughs> so that's that's sort of like how it's become more, I guess, socially driven and less physically directed like there's less i guess violence but the hate is still there and that doesn't mean that um it won't happen again it's almost like it feels like it could go either way it could like slope down to really dwindling and and you know racism actually fading out to where we can have real conversations and then there's the part where um you see how confused people are about racism in general and how the country's never really addressed it. And that's sort of what uh, the government is sort of holding us back from growing past it. So it's almost like keeping a Band-Aid on after the scars healed underneath. Yeah, I think we have... Well, you said education. I think that's at the heart of it is because it's not about having knowledge of each other. Mm -hmm. each other being whoever we identify as different or other, right? Yeah. It's, it's about, well, what words am I permitted to say? And what am I not allowed to say? And then, well, to what extent does any given person try to walk those lines instead of actually trying to learn why 
considering those thoughts and the words that you might, you know, the offensive ones you might say, mm. um, instead of understanding why those don't actually even apply and why, you know, what's wrong with them, not about what context do I share them in or not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because then it's like the safe words you could still use in the wrong context, but it just won't be, it'll, it'll, it'll be PG instead of R-rated, you know, but it's still like, <laughs> you know. The wrong sentiment still is there. Yeah, the wrong sentiment is still there. Like, you, you, it's, it's the same thing. You just didn't show it gratuitously. It's interesting to me how that has gotten wrapped up in politics. Uh, yeah. And not necessarily just in recent years, although it does seem to have taken a bit of a, a turn into, you know, more light is being shined on it maybe in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But that it's, in, that it's tied into politics at all it feels kind of strange to me. But I think, you know, politics probably uses all kinds of tools and weapons, actually. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's almost at the root of politics. Um, you know, the, the fact that we have parties at all or or just uh, two parties, you know, and yeah, is a thing that is ironic in, in terms of like the what's best for, you know, the country is, is to right. separate each other and to root against each other to ultimately combine again. <laughs> you know, it's a, divide it's a, and conquer. Yeah. It's a very jarring process that we just roll with. So yeah. I don't know, like politics is very interesting. You know, if you think about regional politics, there's, there's typically a, a, a lower class and a, in a higher class and and predominantly around the world, the darker people are the lower class and that's just in most countries in the world. And it's not like the black people. It's just like, you know, the, right. the, the tan people are looked at lower than, you know, the light cream people, <laughs> you know, like it's like, you know, or like the burgundies right. looked as lesser than the red cause they're, they're burgundy, you know, it's like that. Right. And that's yeah. the regional politic. And then, you know, the tan people are looking at the reds like they're crazy. And the reds looking at the brown like they're, you know, it's like a circular odd. And that's just border. So it's almost like regionality and, and sort of like aesthetics central to an area create a different kind of politics, like a, a, right. a, a pseudo politics where it's like it's, it's also race you know and you know border and you know tied together you know we find a lot of ways to divide ourselves up yeah with all of this in mind you know there is more than enough to stir up anger depression anxiety confusion all of these emotions and Mm -hmm. it's just it's a very foggy lens to look through and Mm -hmm. comprehend the world. And I'm, uh, cause I, th- I think that's one of our collective, it, it gets amplified in the collective failing of mm-hmm. how we don't really know how to manage our emotions and how we interact with each other. And I'm kind of curious, you are working with this very deep, again, sociopolitical type of subject matter, at least at times. Yeah. And I'm curious how you, how you manage the subject matter that, uh, it would be really understandable if it, got you fired up and pretty angry, right? So <laughs> yeah. how do you how do you manage that and channel it? Whether that's in your artwork or even just in daily life. Like what is mm-hmm. your strategy as someone living in the hustle bustle of New York where which right now the coronavirus, you know, it's it's a heavy hot center yeah. of what's going on there. Just all kinds of reasons. How do you channel it? Yeah, you know, it's a that's a good question. Uh, you know, you you have to really. It's like um, it's one of those things where I I have an objective when I think about it, and it's, so like that's the thing is I'm not thinking about it feeling sad. I'm 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 thinking about it to feel sad so that I can understand the emotion surrounding that idea better. So I try to like. I try to give myself a particular time to think about it specifically. So it's almost like instead of loosely thinking about it throughout the day and having it influence you the whole time you're doing something, like every day, day-to-day situation, okay. sort of like writing a diary or sitting down and just just 
having an exercise of some sort. It's almost like that where, you know, before I start an artwork, if, if I'm about to compose something that's very sad and like upsetting, I'll allow myself to go there in isolation so I can even, you know, reach the point of tears because it's so sad and then come back out of it. And then just remember what that feeling was like and how, like, if I don't kind of feel that in what I'm drawing, then, like, I might not be crying anymore while I'm drawing it, but I remember that feeling and how I want to emulate it in what I'm drawing. So, like, I I kind of, like, try to um, reach for that while I'm making something. And that's what sort of separates it for me. The emotional part is sort of, like, uh, understanding why it's important and, and and what drove it to be there, but then having a second objective of like trying to convey why it's important or why what drove me to have that emotional re- reaction is wrong, you know. So, like for me, I like to create messages, and art's been my outlet to. Uh, do that. I think that's a great uh, strategy. One on on just a human level for how to try to work with this information because I think we often do carry it just all day, and even maybe mm-hmm. worse at night. You're dreaming and distressed, yeah. And you wake up feeling it, you know. But to have that sort of strategy, but also I love getting that insight into your process with creating the art. I want to ask you about collaboration mm. right now because there are a couple of things that I know. You know, for example, you had a show in which the actor and writer Daniel J. Watts had uh, mm. an incredible poem, If They Gun Me Down, that was paired with your work that we've spent quite a bit of time here talking about. Yeah. Uh, and you also have collaborated for years with a friend, another creative guy, uh, Dario Hunt, I mm-hmm. think is right, uh, for the yeah. website Living Life Fearless. Yeah. And I'm curious about, you know, making art so often is or at least can be a one lane solo journey kind of process and i'm curious what you see in collaboration and maybe it's in these specific examples the two that i just mentioned or maybe just Mm -hmm. more broadly yeah i mean those two examples are really strong um and sort of like provide a good understanding of like how i approach collaboration so i'll just start with the daniel j watts one that collaboration was actually really cool really interesting uh daniel j watts is an actor and performer broadway and other you know tv and um him and his partners or him and a friend who also works on broadway wanted to uh, put on a, a show the summer following all of the riots and protests that that uh police cross lines work was inspired by so they were in contact with the gallery basically and the gallery knew a curator and basically they said hey do you have any work about this stuff and do you know any people and i was like well here's my work and they ended up just liking my work so that's how it started was like all right now i'm gonna go meet these guys and these two guys happened to perform in hamilton and uh yeah, one of them is one of the lead singers on The Temptations that's on Broadway now that you've probably all seen advertisements for. Uh, his name's Ephraim Sykes. But it was a really crazy opportunity to meet these guys. And essentially, his work, he does these things called jams, where he does a poetry jam. Uh, but it's sort of like a poetry curated performance of his own original content. And that's what they wanted to do but with an art show that communicated similar sentiments around what he's talking about. And I agreed because of listening and reading the poetry. I was like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense, you know, because that's the kind of creativity I would want paired with my type of work, you know. So it was really organic in that sense. And, um, you know, we've remained friends and are still in contact. That sort of leads me to the Living Life Fearless project, me and Dario Hunt have been friends since, you know, freshman year in high school. When we went to college, he was a business major at the University of Reno, and he started this blog slash company called Living Life Fearless. And uh, 
he reached out, hit me up and said, Hey man, uh, you know, I want you to be like the art mind and sort of like write, you know, opinion pieces and blog about stuff you know, on this site that I'm trying to do. So like we just partnered up then and uh, we've sort of been doing that and developing our ideas and sort of it reached a point where we were like, you know, we don't have to just have our opinions and, you know, our ideas and what we're into. Let's see if we can reach out to writers and photographers and people interested in you know creative things and see if they want to contribute stuff and it's led to like having you know a nice small staff of freelance writers who who create work about you know anything they're interested in in pop culture sometimes it's really niche and sometimes it's really general but it's sort of like a media slash um lifestyle brand where we uh, promote creatives and individuals. Um, so there's actually a video interview that we did with Daniel J. Watts um, about him and uh, his creative process as an actor, which is on Living Life Fearless as well. So there's like things where we try to promote creativity in that regard. So that's a thing that uh, me and Dario do continuously. And we also okay. have a podcast. So, Yeah. <laughs> What is it that you get out of the collaboration? Yeah, you know, collaboration, I think, is important. You don't want to self-isolate too much unless it's government-warranted, like now, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) But um, in terms of what I get out of collaborating, you know, there's that saying, steel, sharpen steel. You kind of want to be... You want to surround yourself, or I at least like to be around people that motivate me, that do things I don't do, and you know that I find interesting. Uh, it it allows you to learn from the people that you surround yourself with, rather than just be familiar all the time with, you know, what happened when you went to the store yesterday. You know, like like those are the most important things, like just regular day life for regular people but when you're creative you just need to meet more creatives because then you you really understand the possibilities of being creative you know and taking something serious because like before you're an artist you'll you'll laugh at you know one brushstroke on a canvas and then 10 years into it you're like wow that brush they made was was handcrafted and they had to create this jig that suspends them above the canvas and their assistant has to slide them, you know, across so that they can use this broom size paintbrush to create this mark. And, <laughs> and and that is what intrigues you about it rather than like, oh, that's a big swoosh on that. Right. And uh, meeting more creatives and like that just like educates you more on on nuance and and different ways of thinking so uh i think that's really important and um it allows you to help each other in the future possibly you never know what will come so like if you are motivated by someone or you think someone's doing something really cool spending time with them creates a bond so like if ever something does come up you know they'd, they'd be more likely to support you because you've actually made a connection versus just meeting and never talking again. I think showing up in the community and that can be through art shows or it can be to go to somebody else's show or to whatever, uh, you know, it's something that I, I feel like I connect with more and more and more is to Mm -hmm. realize that to be part of the arts community, to be an artist also means it's not just self-isolating it. You got to in, whether it's collaborations or not, somehow find that way to be part of it and contribute. Oh, 100%. Your own work. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, this is a Colorado podcast. Well, let me tell all you Colorado people, (laughs) the way I got my, uh, two of my solo shows in Colorado was literally by going to those spaces a lot. Like I went to, the Business of Art Center, which is now Manitou Art Center, and frequented that space a lot. I um, submitted to group shows and uh, got to know the curator at the time. And at happening to be at a show, just asked that curator 
when they'll have me do a solo show, you know, and these slots open, <laughs> you know, joking but serious. And they said they would keep me in mind and email me. And eventually, weeks later, I did get an email and they were like, uh, is this time slot good for you? I was like, heck yeah, you know? So that's how I got my solo show at the Manitou Art Center was asking <laughs> you know and then just being um, there yeah yeah and then the same with the mod boat the modern bohemian you know it's a staple in the community now and um right yeah before when they were it wasn't what it is now this is like eight years ago or okay no seven years ago i was at one of their openings and i happened to run into brett andrus uh one of the co-owners and you know, it was just like, yeah, I'm an artist. I love what you guys are doing. I always love you guys' shows and openings. And, you know, he was telling me about submitting. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just, you know, I'm not too big into submitting to these crazy group things. It always costs. And I, I prefer getting curated into stuff. So that's what I said to him. He's like, oh, well, let me see some of your work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I told him how I had that show in Manitou. And then he was, like, interested. And he was like, you know what? We could do a show. Why don't, yeah, we should just do a show. so like it was literally like being confident being at the places that you might like to show at and literally starting to connect with the people that work there and those provided opportunities yeah you're definitely speaking to to places that i'm familiar with here in town so uh you know i i got a a question for you about a quote that you have on living life fearless. Mm. Uh, we're we're going to bring it back around to this idea of fear before we, we wind ourselves down and, and out of here. Mm-hmm. And something that you had said, here's an excerpt of it, is you have to be fearless to be an artist. It's not always about just getting loved. You, you want to love yourself fearlessly. So take a chance on yourself. And I'm curious how much that might still ring true for you or what your take is on that now, if you would modify it or if it's even just more deeply entrenched. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I guess I would, I guess in a short and sweet way, that sounds great. And I I do agree with that, but I'd probably like add maybe (laughs) a little bit, you know, I guess maybe what I would add is just uh, that fears is uh unavoidable so it, it it needs to be embraced because it's 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 always going to be there you know people are going to be like oh i'm not scared i'm not you know it's not fear but it's like yeah well you know reluctance is like a cousin of fear you know like indecision is a cousin of fear you know like there's there's all these things that are parts of fear that you know you shouldn't not embrace you need to understand that when it comes up it's a a moment for you to make a decision and if you get used to recognizing it and making decisions you'll you'll handle your fear better and it'll actually be become a really great productive tool for you it's a practice yeah i mean all of art is a practice right creating but then to also like you're saying to really get to be aware of yourself and to recognize those sensations of of fear you know indecision is a decision Mm -hmm. you know if you're just sitting on the fence not doing anything yeah. Okay. I'm going to bring us to our last question here, Doris. Mm-hmm. It's more of a summary thought of what we talk about here at Humanitu and what this whole conversation really has been about, which is humanness and creativity. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? Or try to. You tackle that how you want, but how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? Yeah. I try to be as open as possible. And like I said when I earlier, in terms of collaboration, I may not collaborate in art or business specifically all the time um, with people, but I, I still collaborate in so many different ways. And I think that's part of what I do to to be a humanist and stay more creative. You know, I can't just always focus on my ideas I try to connect with new people or or connect with people that I haven't connected with in a long time because we always grow and and develop and change. Um, So sometimes you can learn from someone else's development over the years, you know, like keeping in touch with, you know, my grad school friends when I see the work they're making now versus four years ago when we were in graduate school. I can see the growth. I can see the creativity. And that's motivating. 
and um, I try to be that for others as well. So it's it's like a, a constant like trying to be motivation with your creativity while trying to seek motivation through creative people. So that that cycle of inspiration has allowed me to in daily life try to to live as humanist as possible by helping when you can, you know, supporting when you can, inviting people to other creative things that you're going to. Because, um, you know, something they might say next to you at the space might cause you to think about what you're interacting with there differently, you know. It's all those little things enrich your life and um, enrich others' lives. We never know where the connections might come from. Yeah. That's another word I often use with humanity is it's about connection. It's about empowering connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. So Darius Walker, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, get on the line here with me, share your thoughts, your insights, talk about your art. I appreciate your sharing a lot. Yeah. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm, I'm really glad you reached out. It's uh, been a pleasure to connect with you and share with you guys. There it is with Darice Walker in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Darice in the show notes published on our website at humanity.co. And hey, reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and other players are helpful for what we're doing here. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. So when you can spare a minute or less to shine some light back on Humanity and everyone you listen to here, we'd appreciate it. And if you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity Podcast series that you'd like to give directly to me, send me an email at adam at humanity.co or reach me by Instagram direct message at humanity. And now to the question I ask you after every episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm.